Good morning. I say this a lot, but congregational worship, uh, congregational singing rather, is really such a blessing. Um, our worship team or representatives from our worship team went to a conference uh, kind of put on by, I believe it is actually put on by Keith and Kristen Getty, uh, but they went to a conference called Sing. Um, and one of the things I was talking with Jared Babb, one of our deacons who oversees uh, our corporate worship, and he just commented on how that was one of the emphases of the conference was the need for congregational singing. That there really is no better instrument to magnify the Lord than the human mouth. As we praise God with our lips and make a joyful noise unto the Lord, obviously instruments play a big role in the worship of the people of God throughout the Bible. And so we don't, we embrace those and we say, for the glory of God, we, we, we play those and have those. Uh, but there is really no better sound than the souls of the people of God expressing their love and worship of God with their mouths, with their voices. So praise God for an opportunity just to be here for that. Uh, that in and of itself is so valuable. Uh, just the worship itself together to, to, to exalt our God with our voices. What a, what a wonderful thing that is. I hope we do not take that part of our worship for granted. And I say that part of our worship because this too, what we're about to do is worship. So let me make this point. This is not information download. Okay, so when we have the preaching of the word in corporate worship, this is not an information download moment. Uh, this is part of worship. We sit under the Word of God. We, we walk through the text of Scripture, and we allow it to bear down on our lives. We ask the Lord to do that for us. So that's what we're doing now at this point in our service. This point of our service, which we call instruction, is a time that begins with the, the reading of the Scriptures. Uh, Mike did that um, earlier. And then we went to a song of preparation so that our hearts are prepared to receive the word through preaching. And then now we here are sitting under the scriptures. So let's do that now. Last week we were introduced to the concept of Babylon. Maybe this is a familiar concept for you, maybe not. But it is, it is both a place and a theme in scripture. So there is a a literal Babylon. I'm not sure. Yes, actually, there are at least a couple that I have in mind who have, have been deployed with the military to Iraq uh, here among us. And that essentially is, is the, the, the region of Babylon. You can go and see the ancient ruins of Babylon as it was built up in the 6th century BC by Nebuchadnezzar who was the king who came and conquered uh, Jerusalem and, and tore down the temple. So it is a, it is a very, very much a real, literal place. You can go there today and visit, and you can see the ruins. Uh, you can go to museums and see pieces of even, uh, I believe, the, the gate, uh, one of the gates going into the city uh, is in one of the mu museums. I forget which one, but it is a real place, but it is also in the Bible. It is a theme that runs throughout Scripture. And as a theme or a concept or an idea, it simply means a center of earthly power opposed to God. Or to put it differently, as I, as I quoted uh, from uh, an author last week, the epitome 
of the folly of humanistic culture or the embodiment of human pride and godlessness or a symbol of the accumulated wickedness and impiety of mankind. That is what Babylon stands for as a theme or an idea that we can trace all the way uh, from the beginning of the Bible to the end in the book of Revelation. But this notion of Babylon goes back to Babel or the Tower of Babel story, which we find in Genesis chapter 11. So if you'll go ahead and turn there, that's where we find ourselves today. Genesis 11, verses 1 to 9. If you're visiting with us today, uh, we, are, we are in a series on the book of Genesis. Um, we are going through the first book of the Bible. We've gone through the first 10 chapters, and now we find ourselves here in chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. Very well-known story. Uh, famous story, the Tower of Babel. It's been depicted in so many different ways by artists throughout history. And here we are reading it from God's Word. Last week we covered the first four verses. And this week we will look at verses 5 to 9. The title for the sermon, so it's a two-part sermon. Uh, last week was part one. Today is part two. There won't be a part three. At least I have no intention of there being a part three. Last week was part one, today's part two, and I've entitled this sermon, The City of Man. And the reason for that title is because it, this, is, this is kind of quintessential man apart from God. Man gathered up together apart from God. And I started last week with a very well-known book written by the early church father Augustine or Augustine called The City of God. And he, throughout that book, uh, draws a, a running distinction between the city of God and the city of man, the city of love of God and the city of love of self. And all human society is part of the city of man. All society throughout all of history is part of the city of man. But nothing really captures that more than Babylon. And you'll notice the, the points that we had last week as we try to unpack what's here in these nine verses. You'll notice in the bulletin there the four points that are kind of guiding us through these nine verses. And we covered the first two last week. And so far we've looked at the place and the plan. So let me just take a minute and review that. Not, not extensively. I'm not going to re-preach that. Uh, but let me just review for you what we looked at last week just in case you, you haven't. Uh, listen to that or weren't here last week. It's hard to pick up in the middle of a story. So what we had last week were the place and the plan. So the place, a large plain in the land of Shinar, which is a fertile land between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in the land of Mesopotamia. Uh, maybe if you, you haven't looked at ancient maps or thought much about that, Mesopotamia uh, is modern-day Iraq, as I said before, and probably not that far from the Garden of Eden. We know that that's basically, from Genesis chapter 2, uh, that that's the geography of the Garden of Eden. Somewhere in that area, we have Eden, and here we have the, the uh, exact opposite of Eden with the Tower of Babel. It's kind of interesting. It's also eastward throughout the Bible. So far, we've been given this picture that the further east you move, the further away from God you move. So to move eastward is to move from the east is what you find here. And I said last week the, be the better way to render that really should be eastward. And so we get at the, the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the garden. They go out 
the east gate. They move eastward from the presence of God. Cain moves east from God's presence when God curses him. And so that's the place. We also looked at the plan to use local building materials to create a great city with a really awesome tower that reaches high into the heavens. And by doing this, as they see it, they will establish forever a permanent reputation and perpetual security. This is their thinking. This is their plan. And so off they go with their bricks and their bitumen for mortar, and they're building up this great city with its great tower. So essentially, what we have here to encapsulate it under a few ideas is a settlement and a building project. On, on the surface, that's what the Tower of Babel is. It's a, it's a settlement and then a building project once that settlement has taken place. And we observed last time several aspects of the sin that is at work here. We're meant to do that. You always ask when you come to a passage of Scripture, what about the context and the words themselves? What do they tell us the Holy Spirit wants us to identify? What is the Holy Spirit, uh, through the author, wanting us to see and to consider and to think about? And the main thing that we are to do in the Tower of Babel story is we are to sort of unfold the nature of the sin there. We're to see that for all of its nastiness and rawness. We're to see what is going on here in terms of human sin. So what have we seen so far? As we've looked at the the place and the plan, we've seen independence, which expresses itself in disobedience. We've seen misuse. The misuse of a great gift of a common language. What do they use it for? This. We've seen idolatry trying to work their way up to heaven their own way. All idolatry is a, is a trying to find God their own way. It's interesting when you look at the, the golden calf. When the children of Israel are out in the wilderness. There, there, you know, we can read that story and come away thinking, well, this is just total abandonment of Yahweh, the Lord. This is a total abandonment of Yahwehism, if you will, for going back to the Egyptian religions. And I don't think that's really the best way to read that story. They've just seen God, the Lord God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, do these amazing things in their presence. They've seen his miraculous power. What they are doing there is they are approaching God. Now God has become vague. God has become general. And they're approaching him in their own way. And the way they do that is by building a golden calf. So it's a, it's a mixed up kind of syncretistic paganism. They're worshiping God in part and other gods too, maybe. And it's just an expression of their own sinful purposes. They're doing it their way. That's at the heart of idolatry. By the way, that means that when Christians seek to worship God apart from Scripture... There's a kind of idolatry to that. Does that make sense? It's not okay to just come to God and constitute church and do church and do corporate worship and so forth any old way we please. When we do that, it's a kind of idolatry because we're coming to God, building a tower, if you will, according to our own discernment, our own purposes, our own ingenuity, creativity. So we have idolatry. We have pride. They build it up into heaven for their own name. Fearful unbelief. 
They do not trust God's plan of them dispersing, so they don't want to scatter, and they're afraid that they'll be dispersed, scattered, so they cling together and build a great tower. <laughs> silly. This is, this is so silly, and yet so pervasive in our lives. All that we've covered so far, out of all that we've covered so far, probably the most obvious negative about Babel. So if I were to go around the room and say, reading this story on the surface, what do you think is the, the biggest part of their sin? What, what, what did they do wrong? Some of these things you may not pick up on on the surface, but just about everyone, I think, would hone in on verse 4. Let us make a name for ourselves. I think, I think we all intuitively, if we, we, we've read the Bible at all, we, we know that just does not sound positive. That does not sound good. And it's not. This is one of the most glaring negative aspects in this story. Babel is built for human glory. It's a way to say it. I recently heard a pastor friend of mine use a phrase that really stuck for me. I, I really appreciated it. It's, uh, it's this, that so often we are reputation managers. Think about that for a moment. That people can get so caught up in establishing and maintaining a strong reputation for themselves that they really become nothing more than reputation managers. Think about that. Doesn't that happen in church all the time? I mean, we may say, right? We may say we, we, are, we are endeavoring for authenticity, for transparency. We love these words. These are actually cool words in, in kind of contemporary church culture. Of course, we want to be authentic. We want to be transparent. We want to be real. But the question is, do we really pursue that? Or as we do church, are we just a bunch of reputation managers? The person at home is different from the person at church. You get ready for church and you put on that image of yourself that you want to project, your name, you want your name to be great, and so, of course, you're going out into the public, and you want that to seem as best as it can, as good as it can. When we do that, we need to understand this. This is very important. Our lives become little babbles. Do we see that? Are we understanding that the Tower of Babel is not just some distant story that we read about where there was some ungodly people and idolatry that went on in, in the Middle East long ago and, okay, fine, that's great, has nothing to do with me. We need to understand that every time we live for our own name, every time that we are, are consciously pursuing our own glory, that we are building up a little Babel in our lives. Do we see that? And how easily that can happen. And you know, the truth is, there's only one fix for this. Because this is human nature. This is where we're at. There's only one fix for this. And I like the way Kent Hughes describes it at the end of his commentary on this passage. He says this, We must leave off chasing after a name and find our identity 
in Christ. The truth is that everyone in the world is doing this. There are babbles everywhere. And we, in our old nature, before we met Christ, were doing it just like everyone else. But then we met Christ. Then Christ came. And he took hold of you. As, as Paul says in Titus 2, the grace of God appeared. Now that is speaking primarily of the incarnation. But it is also, I think, meant to be a personal matter. The grace of God appeared for you. The grace of God showed up in your life, in your heart, transformed you, and God saved you. The grace of God has appeared, and now we have a different identity in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.15, Christians are those who no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Anytime you're tempted to pride, just think of your naked, bleeding Savior on the cross. And that will humble you. There are two considerations, I think, that come to mind when we think about our in Christness and not pursuing a name for ourselves. And here's one of them. Everything we could want in chasing a name, we already have in Christ. That's the reason Christians don't do this. That's the reason we're not chasing a name is because everything that the world thinks it will attain and get out of pursuing a name, we already have in Christ. Paul says when the Corinthians are arguing about different teachers, he says, aren't all things yours? Doesn't Jesus say in the Beatitudes, you will inherit the earth? That we have everything. Our names are great and will be great forever for the glory of God's grace. We have everything we could ever want in Christ. The world knows nothing of that and therefore spends these mortal days Seeking self-glory. And the second consideration as we think about not pursuing a name is that we don't have the right to be about our own name. You ever thought about that? It's not just a matter of, oh, I'm being disobedient, I sinned, you know, God forgive me. We don't have the right to pursue our own name. We're owned people. We belong to Christ. We are slaves of Christ. He purchased us with his own blood. We have no right to take ourselves, our members, and use them in this self-guided pursuit. We have a master who owns us, body and soul, every day, forever. There is no right to pursue our own ends. So that was just a little bit of an introduction for what we're going to look at today. So if you will, please go ahead and stand with me for this reading of God's Word. Genesis 11, verses 1 to 9. This is God's inspired, perfect, inerrant Word, and it is profitable. For his people. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. 
And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. If you would please go ahead and be seated. Let's pray and ask for God's help this morning as we study His Word for the purposes of being changed by it, and that the Holy Spirit would be gracious to us in uh, transforming us into the likeness of Jesus. If we're Christians and those maybe here this morning unsure of where you stand with the Lord or you know you're not a believer, you know you don't know God, that God would be merciful to you, ask Him, call upon Him, ask Him to be merciful to you. Father, thank You for Your Word which has sustained and nourished, built up Your church from the very beginning. We thank you for how you speak to us through it and how it is itself your speech. Father, we thank you that we can come to any passage as we've seen, even a genealogy, and we can behold your glory, we can behold our great need for a Savior, and we can even anticipate his coming the first time and the second time. Father, we thank you that you've gathered us here today. This is a special thing to be together with your people, to sing your praises, to affirm our faith together, to partake in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, and to sit under the preaching of the word, to hear the word read. God, what a blessing. We pray that you would... Make our minds attentive, that you would block out distractions, that you would protect us from the devil. We know he is a real being, just as real as we are. And we know he hates this, what we're doing here this morning. And we pray that you would protect us from him. Jesus, we are grateful that you've already prayed for us to the Father. In John 17, recorded there for us, Lord... You, as our great shepherd, you prayed on our behalf even then, and the Father always hears and answers your prayers. And we praise you for that, that you will keep us till the end, that you will protect us from the enemy. Despite many trials, many temptations, many much falling along the way, perhaps, that you will keep us. We praise you for that, Jesus. 
We ask that you would do your work among us this morning that we might be kept. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing we're going to look at this morning is the third point from the outline you have there. And it is the perception. So we've looked at the place and the plan, and now we look at the perception. So go, go ahead with me back to verses 5 to 6. That's where I'm getting this idea. So verses 5 to 6, if you look there with me. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they, all, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Not one of these human pursuits or sins escapes the notice of the all-seeing God. Nothing escapes God's notice. And listen. So often when you're preaching, going through and you're preparing a sermon, you're going to preach, you, you're thinking there are certain ideas that you say, okay, well, well that, that, that's, a, that's an obvious idea. It's an obvious point. Let's just move on and maybe stay and move on. But, but I think this is something that we constantly need to be reminded of is that God is watching you and he's watching me and he sees every moment of every day what we are thinking, saying, feeling. God knows all He sees all. You cannot hide from God. Maybe, maybe some of you in here this morning are hiding from everybody else in your life. Maybe you're hiding even from your spouse. You have a bit of a double life maybe. And no one knows what's going on in your life. You just are kind of going along and the perception of you is one thing. But what's going on inside of you, what's going on when you're by yourself, when you're off and out at work or wherever at home, is something different. What we need to understand is that there is one who sees you and his perception is the only perception that really matters. So all this masquerading before the eyes of men is really quite foolish and fruitless because the only evaluation in the end that matters is that of God. And he sees us all every day, every hour. And for those who belong to him, he watches over us like a shepherd. He disciplines us. You know, Christian God disciplines his children. That's a reality. We need to understand that, that we, we pray that God would sanctify us in such a way that we do not have to undergo a, a painful, arduous disciplining from God. He disciplines his children. Consider his eyes. Here, his perception of what's going on is described in anthropomorphic terms. What I mean by that is simply that God is being described with, with human uh, activity and human words and human terms. What we have here is the image of God <coughs> as a wise and just investigator. He's going to come down and check this thing out. It does not imply as some, uh, I think, uh, I would even go as far as to say ignorant theologians would, would, would suggest 
that here we have a God who is somehow uh, unaware of, of what is going on in his world. That's not the case at all. The author is trying to convey for us what it was like for God to see that, that he, he investigates in his wisdom and in his justice. And he wants to investigate it and unfold for us, the reader, what it is that is actually going on here in this situation. And there are two things that God sees, if you want to write these down. Two things he perceives. He perceives their activity and their capacity. And to each of those, I want to attach this. What I mean by their activity is he sees a pitiful picture. He sees their activity. And what is their activity? It's a pitiful picture. And secondly, he sees their capacity. And what is that? It is a powerful potential. He sees a pitiful picture and a powerful potential at the same time. So let's look at each of these. First activity, verse 5. He comes down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. In other words, he sees what they are doing. And as I said a moment ago, the impression made on the reader is that this is a pitiful picture. We have to see this. The image is from, from the ground, from the ground level. This looks like a really tall tower. I mean, you can even see Nimrod and his, his associates, his inner circle of leadership, standing at the bottom of this tower looking up and, and, and thinking quite well of themselves. Look how high we're getting. We really are. I mean, there's a cloud covering up the top of it maybe or whatever. But we're just really reaching up into heaven. And the text wants us to give us the other perspective. The other perspective is from heaven. And it says, he came down to see. It is, it is like a speck of a structure. The image really is kind of like a human being reaching down over an anthill and looking down really close. You've you got to get on your hands and knees to see this little pitiful thing that these ants have scurried around and built thinking they've made this great structure. And then you just go over it with the lawnmower and it's gone or whatever. <laughs> Or, or, your, or your four or five-year-old gets a hold of it with a stick or whatever, and it's gone. That's the image. It's a little speck of a structure. It's nothingness. Isaiah 40, 22. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. The people to God are like grasshoppers. Psalm 103:19 The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. So that's the first thing that I want you to see there is that he comes down but also we see this language that it is built by the children of man. So we're still looking at looking at the activity, the big idea we're still looking at the activity, we're looking at the pitiful picture of this activity. We see that he came down. But another aspect of this is that it's being built by the children of man. What is that meant to remind us of? Well, two things. It's meant to remind us of the dustiness of man and the depravity of man. Remember that man is nothing but dust. And I'm not talking about man after sin. I'm talking about man before he sinned. In all of his splendor and glory, he's just dust. Scooped up by God, breathed into by God, and formed by God. But his origin is in the earth. Dust. And we know after the fall that not only is he dusty by nature, but he also returns to that very dust. He is sinful, easily wiped away with the water. 
It is the image of God taking a pitcher of water, essentially, and just pouring it onto the earth. That's the flood. It's nothing. From our vantage point, wow. From God's vantage point, just a bit of water. All are gone, except for eight people. You know, the Babylonians had a later tradition that their major structures, their ziggurats, that they built up high into the heavens that were acted as, as a kind of temple for them, but also an expression of their greatness. One of the things that they believed was that these were built by the gods. And here we're reminded that this structure and all human structures, all structures on the earth, not built by the gods, but built by man. Some of you have been watching those weird TV shows, not the pyramids, not built by aliens or anything like that. Built by people, built by man. Just a structure of the children of man. You can get on Google Earth and look down and see the pyramids. They really aren't all that impressive from space. They look nice when you're on the ground. Once again, a great human achievement, but still just a structure made by man. And the cumulative effect of all of this is a pitiful picture. One commentator writes that it is a tiny tower conceived by a puny plan and attempted by a pint-sized people. <laughs> That's what we have here with the Tower of Babel. Isaiah forty fifteen. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. So all these great leaders of the world throughout history that we read books about, that leaders today want to emulate, the Alexander the Greats and the Nebuchadnezzars and the Sargons and all these other people, all throughout history, like a drop in a bucket. Them and their nations. And all the nations of the world today, even America, we're Americans, and all of its military might, nothing. Emptiness in comparison to the mighty Lord of all. All the nations are like a drop, are as nothing. So what does this tell us about the sin at Babel? Well, so remember Luther? Luther uh, commented that that's what we need to focus on as we go through this. What, what does all of this tell us about the sin at Babel? Well, their sin is a matter of deception and self-delusion. That's what we learn here as we, as we consider what's going on with this pitiful picture. In their eyes, it has grandeur. In their eyes, it is beautiful and wondrous and an expression of their greatness. But not in the eyes of the Lord. They are deceived. They are self-deluded. You see, what's happened in their minds, in their sinfulness, is that God has become very small and man has become very big. God can be reached with a tower. He's so small. And man can reach him. He's so big. No, this is self-delusion. And let me say this to us by way of implication. Sin is always preceded by and accompanied by deception. We oftentimes get mired down in sin. We are, we are tickled. We're tempted into sin. 
And it's always accompanied by a form of deception. We always think it is good. We think it is pleasurable. We think that it will somehow enhance our lives. It'll somehow build us up. And in the end, it is nothing but a self-delusion. It is nothing but a deception from Satan and a delusion of our own hearts. It is not true. So that's the activity. But now let's look at the capacity. And here we see that despite the pitiful picture that this is, God sees a powerful potential. It's kind of ironic. In one sense, we have this really puny people. But in another sense, we have this very powerful people. What are we to make of that? God sees a powerful potential. They are united in this sinful endeavor. They are one people with one language, and that has allowed for this project. And they are moving towards more. This is actually a very scary thought. They are moving towards more with great potential. Listen to what it says. This is what the Lord, the triune God, says. Only the beginning, this is. This is only the beginning. Nothing will now be impossible for them. What if Adolf Hitler would have taken over the world? What if there would have been one world under Hitler? What would that have been like? What if there would have been one world under Hitler and he would have lived 400 years? We can only imagine. Nothing will now be impossible for them. So what does this tell us about human sin? It is destructive. It is catastrophically destructive. Even though it is puny and pitiful in one respect, because we are made in the image of God, we have great capacity. And listen to this. And because we are fallen... This is a great capacity for evil. A great, capac- a great capacity for malevolence, for malice, for viciousness and cruelty and fierceness and killing and torturing. That's what we have a great capacity for. So should we seek world peace? It's an interesting question. Think about it for a moment. I mean, so many liberal denominations... The World Council of Churches type folks. What is the objective? Why do we exist in the world as Christians? Is it to somehow bring about and foster world peace? A united humanity? One commentator, Derek Kidner, says that what we're reading here makes it clear that unity and peace are not ultimate goods. Better division than collective apostasy. The division of the world into nations is a check on human sin. One world, one great accord, one great peace under one great government is Babel. And it can only be Babel. There will only be one world order, one world peace that is not Babel. And that is that that reigns under Mashiach, the Christ, the son of God, only under Christ as king. Will there be world peace, world accord, world unity? So that's what God perceives, but now we need to see what God does. And that brings us to our final point. As we come to a close, looking at the Tower of Babel, our final point, the prevention. 
We've seen what God sees. We, now we need to look at what God does. Look with me at verses 7 to 9. 7 to 9. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So one of the things when you're constructing a sermon outline that you have to kind of think through is sometimes there's various ways that you could, you could render that in a short kind of memorable way where people can follow the logic of the sermon and can recall main ideas later. It may be helpful for gospel community group leaders as you're thinking through how to lead your group. And inevitably, one of the things that is difficult oftentimes, in some ways, some of the, one of the most difficult things is coming up with an outline that conveys the meaning of the text in a clear way. And this week was particularly difficult because I have labeled what's going, here, what's going on here as prevention, but these verses could also be labeled preservation or punishment. Of course, it had to start with a P. It doesn't always have to, but in this case, I already had three of those. So, you know, I want to get rid of a fourth. Why not a fourth one? If it started with a D or a T or something, it would totally throw you off. So it's not just a matter of prevention, But what we also have here really is preservation and punishment. All three of those words work here because this is essentially preservation. It is essentially prevention and it is essentially punishment. It's all of those things. But the way I've understood it is in his preventing, which is what is on the surface here, in his preventing, the triune God is both preserving and punishing. So I want to talk about those for a moment. What does that mean? He's preserving and he's punishing. Well, first, preservation. God is preserving humanity. Now, that may seem a little bit strange to you on the surface. What? This is kind of humanity versus God. What is God? God preserving humanity. Yes, he is. He's preserving humanity. He's preserving the nations. And listen, for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Isn't that amazing? God looks at these, these, these pitiful people these rebel sinners who deserve hell. And he looks at them and he sees through history, he sees the nations and he graciously preserves the nations. It's amazing. He's protecting them from destroying themselves. And they would have destroyed themselves. Just like in chapter 3, verse 22, with Adam and Eve, remember then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us and knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Isn't that an amazing passage? I don't know if you remember discussing that in your gospel community group, but it's interesting there that God expels Adam and Eve from the garden, not just, catch this, not just as a matter of punishment or penalty. He expels them from the garden because if they stay in the garden and they eat from the tree of life, presumably that will lock them in to this kind of debauched, immoral, godless, rebellious existence unto eternity, forever. It will be like the living dead, mortal forever. 
So God sends them out of the garden and posts those angels with that flaming sword. Why? Not just as a matter of punishment, but also to protect them, to preserve humanity. And here we see it again. God is preserving. Most importantly, he's preserving the line, the line of the seed. Because see here, even if the line is outside of Babel, the implication is that as Babel grows, nothing will be impossible for them. And the line of Seth, the line of Shem, swallowed up in all of this wickedness. And all of this evil. We saw that, right? With Seth's descendants. It was only one man. All those sons and daughters of all those old patriarchs, antediluvian before the flood patriarchs, all those guys had all those sons and daughters. It was one man of all those people preserved. So here we have God preserving the seed who will save the nations. This is a God of grace, even in the worst of times. You hear that? No matter where you're at. Maybe, maybe earlier you were stung when I said you're hiding. There's a God of grace for that. There's a God who sees you hiding. And he doesn't just stand over you with a flaming sword. He stands over you with a, a shepherd's staff. And he says, come to me. You're chasing idols. These things will not fulfill you. They will not satisfy you. They lead to death. Come to me. That's the kind of God who is standing over you, seeing you. He is a God of grace. He's a God who forgives sin. He's a God who practices patience and forbearance. He's a God who is slow to anger and abounding in love and mercy. His preservation here reminds us of that. But secondly, we do see his punishment. It is preceded by the language of judgment. When God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, those cities that are full of homosexuality, perversion, sexual perversion. Not just as some liberal commentators want us to think that what's really going on there is, is uh, some sort of injustice merely. No, it's, it's sexual perversion that is happening at Sodom and Gomorrah. And God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah for that. But it says in chapter 18, verse 21, which we'll get there eventually in Genesis, it says before that, it says, I will go down. Do you see that? I will go down. In other words, this is the language of judgment. Something's going on down here. Some wickedness and sin. And the language is that God comes down to it to destroy it, to judge it, to make it stop. That's the language of judgment. God is just and holy and must punish human rebellion against his good rule. One commentator, Gordon Wenham, says, The multiplicity of human languages is a reminder of divine retribution on human pride. You know, that makes some of us a little sad, because some of us really like languages. Maybe you know how to speak three or four or five languages or something like that. And that's, that's wonderful. And languages are a lot of fun to learn. Maybe you're kind of a grammar person. Very few out there, I know, but... Maybe you're kind of a grammar person and you like that sort of thing. And that is the state of the world we live in. And it is exciting. And, and there is a, a role for linguists. And, and it is wonderful to learn these things just, just on, on a basic level for the mere, the mere intellectual stimulation of learning languages. Forget all of the ways we can use that for the glory of God. But the, the mere intellectual stimulation of learning languages is in itself a reflection of our capacity for reason, of our capacity to reason and to learn and think. 
And so it gives glory to God when we learn things. But languages exist because of our rebellion. That's what we need to remember. There would only be one language if humanity had not done this. That's the reason that there are many different languages in the world. So every time we hear all of this, we are reminded of God's judgment. God is a God of grace, but he is a God of judgment. He is a God who will fill his heaven with human beings. And he is a God who will fill hell with sinners. We need to understand that. He is a God of grace, but he is a God who justly judges sin. But if we simply look at what's most obvious here, this prevention, this is what really is on the surface. God prevents. He, he, he prevents, and in his preventing, he punishes, and he preserves. If we look just at his prevention, what we're seeing is that God is shutting this down. Simply put, he is shutting this down. And how? He confuses and he disperses. And these two are interconnected. It's unclear. What does God do? If we could go back and stand there at Babel and we could look at what God did, did he, did he confuse all the languages? And as some commentators have said, the people all start fighting each other. And then they don't get along anymore. And then these guys say, we're going over here. And those guys say, we're going over there. And maybe that was the case. It's unclear. Or did God change their languages and somehow disperse them? It's unclear. What we know is that he does these two things. These are the two verbs used. He confuses and he disperses. Confusion of languages so they won't understand each other dispersion over the face of the earth so that they won't be united in this rebellious and self-destructive activity. As one commentator says, so that all the descendants of Noah can no longer live together and cooperate on anti-God projects. No more anti-God projects for you as one. Done. So God disperses them. And the end result, you have to see this. This is, this is humorous. The end result is ironic, shows the folly of man and the wisdom and power of God. So their pursuit of fame leads to what? Infamy. That's ironic. What they love, what they want more than anything is to be known and glorified. And what God does is he reverses it so that they don't just become unknown. They become infamous. Their reputation becomes of the dung, the dirt. Instead of a great name, they get Babel, which sounds like Bilal, the verb for confuse. And you'll get a little note in your ESV about that. Uh, the word Babel sounds like Bilal, which is the verb that God voices here to confuse them. I love what John Calvin says about this. Not only does God frustrate their false confidence, he also brands them with everlasting disgrace. That's what God does to these people so that they would be detested by all their descendants. Any one of you who sat through four years of Spanish or French or something like that in high school and thought, woe is me. This is, this is, this is Calvin. What is what he's saying? So that they would be detested by all their, it's their fault, by all their descendants on account of their responsibility for the great calamity inflicted on the human race. This calamity of multilingualism. So what does this tell us about their sin? Remember, that's our theme. We're tracing that through. We've seen independence and misuse from the beginning. We just saw this deception. 
this delusion? What do we learn here about their sin? It's futile. It's futile. Sin is always futile. You may have high hopes in your sinning, but it leads to nothing. You know, there's a word that the Bible has for this. I love it. It's such a beautiful image. It's called chaff. It's called chaff. So in the ancient world, in, 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 the, in Hebrew culture, there was a, a way of, uh, of harvesting grain where you would take your pitchfork, if you will, and you would throw everything up into the sky and the wind would carry away those, those really light husks and then... And then there would be a heavier kind of straw that would be uh, blown away, not quite as far as the first. And then the grain, which was boom, weighty. It was heavy. It was substance. That's what you want. That's what you're after. That would fall to the ground. Then you gather up the grain and the chaff blown away. And that's what the psalmist means in Psalm 1 when he says that the man who builds his life on the word of God is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. What is the wicked man like? Chaff. Chaff that the wind drives away. Nothing. Teach your kids that. That if they do not build their life on God, their life will be empty and worthless like chaff. That's what we all need to hear. That's what our children need to know. They're not going to hear that in the world from Babylon. They will hear that only from Christian parents and Christian leaders, people in our church here. Expose them to reality. One medieval monk named Thomas Akempis wrote a book called The Imitation of Christ. And some Christians have said this is the most influential book on their lives apart from the Bible. And I know in college, for me, this was a book that had a significant impact on me. It was written in the 1400s by some obscure unknown who did not have a name monk. And didn't, didn't care for a name because he penned this. Vanity of vanities, reflecting on Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity but to love God and serve him alone. Is that your heart? That should be the heart of anyone who reads the Tower of Babel story seriously. To not do so is to live a life of vanity. So what do we have at Babel as we finish up this morning? Independence. Disobedience, misuse, idolatry, pride, fear, unbelief, deception, self-delusion, destructiveness, and utter futility. And let me just say this to you this morning. This is a life apart from the grace of God. This is a life apart from the grace of God for you, for your family members, your friends, your neighbors, the people you meet. This is a picture, much like Cain was kind of a picture of the typical human being apart from God in rebellion against God. The same is true of Babel. We're getting another picture of our sinfulness. Remember what Paul says, the law is meant to show us our sin so that we turn to Christ. We see that we can't keep the law. It leads to Babel. It leads to Cain. And that's why we need a Savior who will bear God's wrath on our behalf, who will take our sin off of us and put His righteousness on to us. There's no earning it. There's no doing better. There's no set of resolutions. Trust Christ and be saved. It's the only way. As awful as the Tower of Babel is, it points us forward to a time when there will be one voice. In the prophet Zephaniah, 
It says, chapter 3, verse 9, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. One day there will be a world full of people who came from every tribe and tongue and nation who will together in one accord, one understandable voice, worship the king and will never build a tower. We'll never build a great city for their own glory, but will forever exist for the glory of God. That's where all of human history is headed. Pentecost, I think, was a moment where this became a reality, became seen, manifested. Pentecost, each one was hearing them speak in his own language. God said at Pentecost, I am the God who in judgment divides the people. But I am the God who in salvation unites the people. In Christ, one voice. And that's what happened at Pentecost. The language barrier was broken down by the power of God. The Holy Spirit fell upon the disciples and they spoke in languages they had never learned. Grammatical structures they had never mastered. Vocabulary they had no idea of. Languages far different from their own. And they spoke by the Spirit to people that they might be saved. The unity of the nations is realized once again in and through the Lord Jesus Christ only. That's why Paul says, Romans 13, Romans 15, that Jesus Christ is the hope of the nations, the Gentiles. He's your hope. Is he your hope? Do you believe in Jesus? Or are you living for yourself? Repentance and faith go together. To trust Christ is to turn from sin. To turn from sin is to trust Christ. Have you done that? Are you doing that? Daily, do you trust him now? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the forgiveness of sin. God, how similar we are to these, these Babylites, these Babylonians in our independence, and so forth. We could list all these again. And they define us, God, from time to time. They define our conduct. They define our pursuits, our thinking. But praise your name, God, that in truth they do not define us because we have been bought back from slavery by the Redeemer. And because, as Paul says, from the inner man we delight in the law of God. We praise you for that, God, that no matter how we fall and stumble, you are with us. You are gracious to us as a good father, as Abba. Help us trust in you through your son. Help us fight these sins that so easily ensnare us and deceive us. In Jesus' name, amen.